0: I'm Michael Izakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And
1: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo
0: News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. David Plouffe was a young, up-and-coming Democratic strategist who achieved instant stardom eight years ago when he served as campaign manager for Barack Obama, shaping the strategy that allowed the then-Illinois senator to defeat Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination and become the first African American to be elected president of the United States. Today, Pluff is focused on a different task advising his fellow Democrats how to defeat Donald Trump. He thought he had it all figured out, writing a just released book entitled A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. But the coronavirus crisis has upended everybody's political calculations and introduced new wildcards into the race. We'll talk to Pluff about how the virus pandemic is changing the 2020 election and what kind of campaign he thinks Joe Biden ought to be running on this episode of Skullduggery.
2: Because people have got to know whether or not their president's are crook.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: So the virus news uh, keeps coming at us. It's still every bit as dire as it's looked for the past few weeks uh, and in some respects getting worse. But Congress has come to the rescue, or at least they think they're coming to the rescue, passing this new $2 trillion package that seems to have stabilized uh, the market somewhat. But we got a long way to go.
1: Yeah, we do. And there are other small rays of hope out there that you know we need to be careful not to overstate. But as we record this uh, today on Wednesday, Governor Andrew Cuomo's uh, briefing, he talked about some evidence that the rate of spread in, in New York State, which of course is the epicenter of this disease uh, in the United States and moving toward being the epicenter of the disease in the world. That rate of spread may be slowing a little bit. Last Sunday, hospitalizations were doubling every two days. By yesterday, Tuesday, they were doubling every 4.7 days. The caveat from Cuomo was this may be too good to be true. But in addition to that, you're seeing that they, they really have made some significant progress in Westchester County in that really serious hotspot up there. So, you know, I think moments like this, people sometimes want to latch on to anything hopeful. Let's hope this is a trend and not an aberration. But, in, you know, in the meantime, politics goes on.
0: Yes, it does. And, you know, we're going to be talking to David Plouffe about uh, what the, what he thinks the Democratic strategy should be in this new uh, coronavirus environment uh, we're living in. But Trump, I got to say, the polls show he's done slightly better just uh, being out there every day, uh, making his pronouncements from the White House. But Then every time he looks quasi presidential, he lapses into the Donald Trump we all have come to know. And nothing brought that home more to me than this absolutely bizarre tweet he put out just this morning, Wednesday morning, about the news that Mitt Romney was uh, testing negative for the virus. And I'm just going to read this because it is so bizarre. And this is exact quotes from our president. This is really great news, exclamation point. I am so happy I can barely speak. He may have been a terrible presidential candidate and an even worse U.S. senator, but he is a rhino and I like him a lot, exclamation point. What do you make of that?
1: A rhino being a Republican in in name name only. only. Yeah. Um, it, It is. That's just that bizarre, narcissistic pathology of this president that in a moment like this, when we're facing a public health catastrophe and every American, every American is is worried about what the effects of this pandemic are going to be, not just on, you know, other people around the country, but on their neighbors, on their relatives, on their friends and on their own families. And Donald Trump is essentially joking about it, using this as an opportunity to sarcastically go after one of his nemeses, uh, Mitt Romney. This is, by the way, this is not the first time he did this. He was also asked about Romney, you know, getting tested for uh, coronavirus, isolating at one of the coronavirus. yeah, at a White House what uh, uh, news
0: conference. And, you know, he, he seemed to make light of it. Oh, Romney's being tested. That's too bad or something to that effect, uh, which struck everybody as sarcastic. But what strikes me about this is, you know, it's actually sort of fascinating to dissect because you can see like Trump warring with himself. He knows he has to say something positive because it's yeah. good news, but he can't sustain it for more than one sentence. And then he undercuts and goes back to the Donald Trump we've all you know, come to know over these years. So his first sentence, this is really great news, exclamation point. His second sentence, I'm so happy I can barely speak. Clearly sarcastic, right? He then says, He may have been a terrible presidential candidate and even worse U.S. senator, but he's a rhino. And Trump realizing maybe he's gone too far ends with, I like him a lot, exclamation point. I mean, it's like Trump trying to balance his natural instinct for sarcasm and criticism with a sort of meager effort to sound as I said before, quasi-presidential. Anyway, I, I just was like scratching my head when I read that.
1: Laying bare his um, unusual psychological makeup in a 140 characters, or I guess tweets aren't 140 characters anymore, but he probably still sticks to that. So (laughs) anyway,
0: all right, listen, uh, uh, we got a great guest here. David Plouffe is obviously given a lot of thought to how this election should be run for the Democrats. He's having to revise that a bit, uh, more than a bit, perhaps with the pandemic, but a lot of interesting things to say. So let's get to it. We are now joined by David Pluff, former campaign manager for Barack Obama and author of the new book, Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. David, welcome to Skullduggery.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm
0: good to be with you again, Mike. So, uh, look, you obviously we're going to talk about your book, but you obviously wrote this before the coronavirus crisis has scrambled our politics in ways we are only just trying to figure out. Tell us your take at the moment about how this public health emergency has changed the political calculus for 2020.
2: Well, it's not a dodge, but we just don't know. Right? So so much of this will depend on where we end up. I mean, what is the true uh, cost economically? What are the job losses like? Does this virus come back in the fall? There's so much we don't know. What we do know is we know who the general election contenders are. So it's Joe Biden and Trump. Trump obviously had a plan. They've spoken to this publicly that they wanted to basically have a shock and all media campaign to try and make it hard for Biden to take the stage as the nominee. That's been put off. So um, Biden, I think, caught a break there. And the Biden campaign needs to quickly build a general election campaign of enough smarts and resources in these battleground states to get going, because the other thing, the general election now has been shortened. So, you know, it might have started in force two weeks ago without the coronavirus. After Biden looked like he clinched the nomination, now you're probably looking at this not really getting in 10 terms of an intense phase until maybe as late as May. So I don't know whether, you know, we've seen some bump in Trump's approval rating mildly, which is not surprising. Folks want our president to succeed. But I think the story of how he's mishandled this will be very compelling. And I think so much of this election, whether it's the economy, whether it's rule of law, whether it's crises, do you really want to go through this for another four years? <laughs> and so I, I actually think that in a way that argument I think is so central. And that sounds so simplistic, but I, I think you want every swing voter out there, and anybody who's thinking about voting third party, anybody who's thinking about not voting who's registered to say, Do I really want four more years of this? And I think if you can narrow down that question, Democrats should have a pretty good chance of winning.
0: Let me ask you, uh, just in the short term here, as the crisis has unfolded with the daily White House briefings where the president is at, Andrew Cuomo in New York is getting a lot of attention because he's doing these daily briefings and seems to be talking in direct ways that connect with people Biden has kind of been eclipsed. Last week, he was almost invisible after the primary victories. He's started to reemerge in this sort of front porch virtual campaigning, uh, doing uh, web talks, whatever. But he's not getting a lot of attention. Does that bother you a bit to see your candidate generally being eclipsed in the middle of a national crisis?
2: Well, he's going to be eclipsed, because obviously, for good or for bad, and usually bad, we're in the middle of a crisis, and the president's going to take center stage. You've got governors uh, and mayors who are leading crisis response locally. Biden is not in office now. So that's just a reality. So I think he's starting to do more interviews, which is great. I think they need to do a lot more videos, really think Facebook and Instagram and YouTube first. I'm a little worried about that. They do statements. They did a conference call last week. Now they're doing interviews. Interviews are good because they're video and those clips can be, you know, edited and, and put out for reach. But I think they need to think much more social media first. You know, I would say that without the coronavirus situation, I think generally that's politics today. I talk about it in my book. Door are knocking still important. Phone calls are still important. But the public square now is Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and for younger people, Snapchat and TikTok. And you have to be thinking first and foremost about those platforms every day. If you've got something to say, something to announce, you better think first about how am I going to do it on each of those platforms? And each of those platforms is different. So I have an overarching concern, sort of independent of the coronavirus, that we really have to make sure that the Biden campaign and progressives are meeting people where they are in the year 2020, you know, he's not going to get equality in terms of airtime because he's not in government and people in government rightly are getting the airtime.
1: David, um, I'm going to get to the book in one second, but I just want to follow up on that point. So you are saying that you think this not sort of smart effective use of social media has been a weakness of the Biden campaign kind of from the beginning and they need to really step that up.
2: Well, I think it's been a weakness. I still think it's a weakness of most Democrats. You know, not all. For instance, I think, you know, AOC tends to get how people consume information in this day and age. So um, I think the folks on the Hill, Democrats on the Hill, you can't think about it as a news conference. the, The microphone, a statement is the way you communicate today. You can do that. But the thing at the very front of the strategy tactically has to be these social media networks. Uh, the way I think about it, I worked in government and politics a long time, as you guys know. So you announce your new health care plan or you react to something the opposition puts out economically. You think about what's our policy response and, and which reporter are we going to give the interview to? And, you know, when are we going to do our news conference? All that now has to be secondary. We can argue whether it's good or bad for society, but it's just reality, too. How am I communicating on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram? Snapchat, and increasingly TikTok, which you can't buy ads on, which has to be viral. So I think that's a challenge for our leaders in Washington. I think it's a challenge for Joe Biden, who's now our nominee. So it's not specific to Biden, but Trump gets this, and his campaign gets this. It's blunt force communication. It's really utilizing a lot of visuals. And what we haven't seen yet from the Trump campaign, and I suspect we're going to see it any day now, is a massive online advertising onslaught. That basically does the hero worship of Trump. Here's how he handled the response and basically tries to recreate reality. So he's trying to do that from the podium. But what I think I'm very worried about is we're going to see tens of millions of dollars of advertising in battleground states any moment. That basically says he's the greatest crisis responder of all time and you know a lot of people will reject that but some people will accept it and we're this election will be dependent on the margins decided on the margin so yeah. so i think the biden campaign has an acute need to really up their game and understand how people receive information in this day but i think that's true for our entire party so
1: the book is called a citizen's guide to beating donald trump and a premise of this book is that citizens people who are not not necessarily party people or operatives, but just regular Americans. They have the ability to do small things that I think you say in the aggregate can add up to big things that can make the difference between winning and losing? Because there is this kind of fatalism that I think a lot of people have. Well, my vote's not going to count. It's not going to count if I live in a either a very blue state or a very red state. Explain what you mean. What are those little things that people can do, should be doing, that can make a difference?
2: Right. Now, I think not everybody, obviously, folks, law enforcement, medical professionals are working around the clock, but there's a good chunk of Americans who have slightly more time than normal, right? So make your plan. So if you live in a battleground state and you haven't been a volunteer leader or a precinct captain, can you do that? If you don't live in a battleground state, can you travel to one in the fall? Fire up your social media accounts if you got rid of them, because that's where the campaign is going to be waged day to day. If you see a piece of content from a citizen or a super PAC or, or Joe Biden that you like, share it. If you see a lie, respond to it. So everybody's got their role. I think to fight the social media wars, which we have to do because we don't have Fox and Sinclair and Breitbart and all these online publications that seem to pop up every day, you know that the right uses in a coordinated way. I really hope any day we're going to get all get emails from the Biden campaign saying, "Hey." We'd like you to write postcards or phone people in Florida or North Carolina or Arizona who aren't registered and convince them to register. So there's a lot you can do. And I think that's really important for me. I'm anxious for that. So Biden's obviously not the formal nominee, but, you know, the primary's is over. Uh, and I think those are the types of things he needs to do very soon. You start reaching out to people and saying, here's how you can help us. Even if you're home, even if you're home through April, you know, here's what you can do. You can write postcards, you can make phone calls, you can create content. Now, some of that can be done anyway. There's great progressive groups already working on that. So part of the message to the book is don't wait to be asked. I want people to be asked, but jump into your game here. And what are you doing? So every day you see an infographic or video that might speak to you. Maybe it motivates you or inspires you. Maybe it makes the case against Trump. Share it. So if you think about that, millions of Americans, and and that's just a small percentage of the people who ultimately vote against Donald Trump. So if just a few million Americans every day share some content, maybe they create content. The best example I like to use is, let's say your neighbor or somebody you know voted for Trump last time, but is not going to this time. Say, hey, do you mind if I take a 15 second video with my phone and share this? That's an amazing piece of content that may go viral, maybe it doesn't. But in today's age, you also have groups with a lot of money who may see a great piece of content like that and say, hey, we're going to put some money behind that to boost its reach. So so everybody's got to get in the game here. I think you're right. So often we're like, why isn't the candidate doing this? (laughs) Why is the media doing this? And so, yeah, by the way, my view, I read about this in the book, if you see something not working well in the campaign, you should complain about it publicly. (laughs) That tends to be the best way to get in the game.
0: It sounds like a little, that's what you're doing here, that you're a bit frustrated that the that Biden and the Biden campaign hasn't been more aggressive during this period of the health crisis, hasn't been out there enough. Have you made those (laughs) views known to the folks in the Biden campaign? Have you been giving your take on this?
2: Well, here's what I, I obviously learned not to reveal anything I'm saying or not saying to folks. But no, I'm not like this whole notion of where is Joe? Like, He's not in government. So, you know, we shouldn't judge this guy. Is he getting the same kind of airtime that Trump is or even in a So I'm not frustrated by that. What I want to make sure is, as you make the turn to the general election, that our nominee and all democratic groups are really have a social media first approach to how they're delivering information and content, that they're asking a lot of the individual citizen and making it easy for them to help. Those are the types of things. And so it is now March. I'm talking to you on March 25th. So really, I'd say in another week or two, you need to see that type of of activity. So if you are someone who lives in Florida or Arizona, North Carolina, even though we're going through this coronavirus crisis, it'd be great if folks got a message saying, hey, here's how you can help. Maybe in the beginning, it's just like, hey, make your own plan. And then it's a week later saying, hey, we have 5,000 people in your area who we think would vote for Joe Biden if they registered and they're not registered. Could you reach out to them? Here's Here's their contact information. So those are the types of things. This is why the most important currency in campaigns is time. And I'm very pleased that we know who our nominee is now rather than June. So they've got time now to build the campaign, particularly when you're running against an incumbent who is ready. As you guys know, Donald Trump announced his, if I recall, he announced his reelection campaign the day he was inaugurated. He did, yeah. They've been spending money in these battleground states. Right now, Donald Trump can tell you, or I shouldn't say him, but his campaign can tell you with a lot more certainty how they're going to get to their win number in Wisconsin, Arizona, and Pennsylvania than we can, uh, just because they've been incumbent. That's what they've been focused on. And so I think time is of the essence for the Biden campaign to really begin running the general election campaign. I made that turn before back in 08. No, it wasn't against an incumbent. It was against John McCain, who secured his nomination uh, before we did. It's incredibly hard, so i not suggesting that this is an easy thing to do, but it's something that has to be done, which is those are the things I'll be looking for is, you know, every day is there. Is it clear that they're thinking social media first? Are volunteers throughout the country getting asked to do things early, not late? That's what we're going to have to do to beat this guy.
1: David, how much is this about getting the message out versus getting the candidate out? Because Throughout this primary campaign, my sense is that Biden has a tendency to sort of drop out of a conversation, a kind of inability to seize the spotlight in kind of dramatic fashion. You know, we saw all through the debates, he was the only candidate, in fact, I think the only candidate I've ever seen do this, where the bell rings or whatever, he stops in mid-sentence and says, my time is up. And so, and he's up against, as you said before, a candidate, an incumbent president who knows how to dominate the news cycle. He's a carnival barker, a media whore. It's what he does best. How worried are you about Biden personally not being able to actually, you know, kind of break through in that way?
2: Well, that's interesting. I mean, obeying the rules and debates, not having a pathological need for the spotlight. I think ultimately those are going to be benefits for Joe Biden in the general mm-hmm. election, right? Because they are. He's not a generational contrast to Trump, but those are pretty big contrasts with Trump. And there's no doubt in the research I've seen, there's a pretty big percentage of swing voters out there who are just tired of the show. Even some people who voted for him and say, I'm actually still glad I voted for him. But four years is kind of a good, you know, that was a good time to shake it up. But I'm not sure I want to do this for eight years. So I'm not overly worried about it. I do think the question of how do you day to day compete with a guy who's shown a great ability to dominate the oxygen in any room is troubling. Right. So we saw with Hillary. Three debates, if you believe polling, she was viewed the winner of those. I think most people believe she had a much better convention. So the big moments, you know, she seemed to be okay And But day to day he dominated with his latest outlandish and charge and his crazy memes and gifts and he tweets. So that's what I think the Biden campaign needs to figure out is how do we compete in that environment? How do we punch through? Now with advertising, of course, you can reach who you want to reach. So this is more about the free media coverage every day and earned media coverage, which is important in presidential campaign. So I guess Biden has to be who he is. The worst thing would be somehow to become an inauthentic demander of the spotlight and sayer of outrageous things. So you got to be who you are, but the campaign does need to figure out. And this is a challenge I, I will confess. I'm not sure the answer to it either, but I do know that memes and GIFs and great short videos are an important part of this. It's not just whatever you say in your rally in Wisconsin on September 20th. You really have to think through how can you do some things online that really capture people's interest that might go viral.
0: Look, David, I get your point about the importance of social media, but I went back and looked at the op-ed you wrote in the New York Times after the 2016 election, the election in which you had said there was you were 100 percent confident that Hillary Clinton was going to win and you you know, sought to explain how you got it wrong. And a couple of lines leapt out at me when I read that. After noting how much worse Hillary Clinton had done in districts that Obama had carried, you wrote, it's a reminder that presidential campaigns are driven in large part by personality, not party. And uh, then you close the piece by saying Democrats will spend months analyzing what happened and making important corrections we need new talent and leaders to emerge at all levels including some who can begin to think about running in 2020 against president trump our bench looks thin and conventional but no one thought in 2004 12 that obama or Trump would be serious candidates. The name of our savior may not be on anybody's tongues right now. It'll be fascinating to see who emerges from the rubble of losing what looked like a sure thing. Here we are, nearly four years later, and we've got Joe Biden, 77 years old, a guy who's been around for 40 years, not exactly the new talent and leaders you said the party needed.
2: Well, yeah, I think we saw a lot of new leaders and new talent emerge in 2018. And what was so exciting about that election for me, not just the Democrats did well, but the types of candidates that decided to run, just normal people. You know, these were not career politicians. And so some of those people who won in 18, I do think you're going to see them on the presidential stage, 24, 28, 32. So, yeah, it was a very conventional field. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, obviously, I, I think, qualified as kind of a fresher face but I think for the most part, it was a, a very standard presidential field. So I think a lot of our talent now, you know, Vice President Biden, I think, has a bunch of amazing women that he can now consider. Some of them have been around a while. Some are, are newer. And I think one of the reasons they went so well was those candidates really spoke to people because they were just average people, you know, small business people and teachers and nurses and military veterans who said, you know, I'm going to run. And most of them, I doubt, are going to be in politics for their career. They're doing it for a period of time as a service to the country. So, yeah, so it was a very conventional presidential field, I think, with the exception of Mayor Pete. I would have liked to see fresher faces. But here's where we are, right? And so at the end of the day, I do think some of Biden's weaknesses that they were perceived in the primary, to your point, he sometimes you know, doesn't dominate the spotlight and he follows rules and he's been around forever and he doesn't have the most exciting policy positions, perhaps, those can be strengths in general. I think they will be strengths in general. His solidity. No one questions his ability to manage crisis. His empathy. His fundamental goodness. All of these are big contrasts with Trump. And so I think his big challenge, I think for swing voters, those will be super positive attributes. He's a comfortable place for them to land if they've decided not to do the Trump thing again. The challenge, I think, will be, you know, base voters, younger voters. That's a challenge for any candidate. Everybody assumes it was easy for us with Barack Obama. It was the hardest thing we did. So that's where I think a lot of time and effort is going to need to be applied. And, you know, what's interesting back to social media is Biden, you know, that great picture of him in the Corvette smiling like he could become a really interesting character. (laughs) He really could be right. He's kind of in a way. Made for the meme and GIF world that we live in. On the positive side, so I'd like to see them lean more into that and take advantage of kind of the Uncle Joe and the Aviator thing a little bit more.
1: David, um, as you know, uh, the Vice President Biden has made a commitment that he's going to pick a woman as his vice presidential nominee. Who do you think would be a, a good? I know you're not going to make a, a recommendation here, but who would be an? Interesting... Why not make a recommendation? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> who, who do you think would be number two on the ticket and? And in terms of complementing Biden, but also in terms of the constituencies that the Democrats are going to most need to win this
2: election. I've helped lead this process before, right? So the most important thing is going to be the personal chemistry and trust between Joe Biden and whoever he picks. And it's going to be less about the campaign trail and more about the White House, right? This is not a warm bucket of spit job anymore. So you want to pick somebody that, A, you won't be annoyed by for eight years, (laughs) that you'll get along with that you trust, that you think will be a source of great counsel, including tough counsel, uh, but we will keep that discreet, somebody you can give assignments to, crisis management, working with Congress, world leaders. So that's the campaign, to me, has to be secondary to who's the right choice. And so it, you can't just look on paper about who would be the best vice president or the best vice presidential candidate, because so much of this is the chemistry between the two people. I don't think that the you know historically vice presidential picks have not mattered a great deal to swing voters but I do think it's important that the baseline has to be if something happened to Biden this person could do job on day one. So he can't take like a huge risk here. He's got to pick somebody that every american whether it's an active volunteer of Joe Biden's or a swing voter in Wisconsin says that was a responsible pick. This is somebody who could do the job. I do think you do want to excite the base a little bit. So I speak personally; like I hope the day he announces this, I'm excited <laughs> by who he picks. All right. So who would who would excite you, David? Well, we have we have such a big list of people. All right.
0: Name, give us a couple who excite you the most.
2: There's people who were on the stage with him. I think Amy Klobuchar and, and Kamala Harris. and Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren. You've got Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. You've got Senator Cortez Masto of Nevada. You've got Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor. You've got Val Demings, law enforcement background, member of Congress in Florida. And the list goes on and on. So even though he's now limited the initial pool because he's ruled out men, he's probably still going to have anywhere from eight to 15 serious candidates. And that's excitement. So I'd be excited about any of those folks, but I would just encourage people not to overestimate the impact of this election on the presidential campaign, because people are voting on Trump and Biden. They're not voting on their number twos. But I do think it's something that can help on the margins. And so you want to, A, the most important thing the vice presidential nominee does in the campaign is that one debate. So you want to pick somebody that you're confident can handle the debate. Somebody now they're kind of off Broadway, right? So they're running around the country doing important work, but they're not the main star of the show. So somebody who can do that well. But it really comes down to if I win, who is going to be value add for me? And you know that's ultimately why Obama picked Biden. Even even Trump, okay, he didn't pick Mike Pence because he's some like electrifying political figure. He knew I needed to send a signal to the American people that by picking a boring white dude with government experience, there's going to be somebody by my side who probably can handle the job, but who could help him when he was in the presidency. So I just think that we have a huge list of people. He may look at folks mentioned Sally Yates, folks mentioned some folks who served in the military. So I do hope they take an expansive view, not just folks currently in office who ran recently. Like, let's look at people in business. Let's look at people in the military. Let's look at a whole group of people. But I'm sure what will we'll come outside the others. I just think about when he makes that announcement and they're on the stage for the first time together, um, it is going to be exciting. We haven't had a woman in that, Watson Ferrara. We obviously had one leading the ticket in 16, but I think it'll be an exciting moment.
0: Let's talk a little about the mechanics of this campaign, which have been so scrambled by uh, the virus. We still have more primaries to go. I think the next batch is April 28th. They've been postponed in some instances. There's a lot of nervousness about even holding these uh, the primaries that still need to take place. A lot of talk about mailing in voting for the November election, a lot of talk about whether the conventions are going to be able to take place. Uh, Just uh, game it out as, you know, all these issues as you see them. And if we're down to the last few weeks and it is largely mail in voting because people are still, still too spooked to show up and vote, how does that play? In the primary or the general? Well, we got the primary to start with, right? We got to get through those primaries and how that's going to happen is still unclear. But yeah, in the
2: general as well. So we'll see if those April primaries get moved to June as well. We may end up having kind of a mega day in June. And those states need to make adjustments to either encourage more people to vote by mail who you know might be election day voters, or if the it states that it don't have of history or, or allow vote by mail in big numbers, they're going to have to make that change. The primary's over. I mean, I mean, Joe Biden's delegate lead might as well be 3,000. There's no way he's going to lose it. So Joe Biden can be and his campaign can be respectful about this, but I hope that they are not spending a moment thinking about the rest of the primaries. Like if they're thinking about Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, who haven't voted yet in the primary, it needs to be through the prison of the general election. So they need to focus on November and beginning to build campaigns in those states to win in the fall. So for the convention, yes, the DMC is going to have to have two scenarios, virtual convention, in-person convention. The debates may not be affected by coronavirus because you could do them in studio, but, you, you know, Trump has said he's not going to debate. So if you're the Biden campaign, you have to have one plan for the fall that has three debates and, and one that doesn't. Every state's going to have to have a backup plan that would allow the entire election this November to be conducted by mail. And some people ask, well, why would the Republicans do that? Because we have a small thing called the Constitution as a backdrop, right? So if there's not an election on January 21st, 2021, Donald Trump's no longer president. So there has to be an election. And so that will be incentive, I think, for even folks who, who don't believe in vote by mail. You know, I'm not being naive here. I think it's going to take a lot of work.
1: Hey, David, on, on that point, I mean, aren't there like 27 states who don't have absentee voting? I mean, aren't you going to have to get those state legislatures to pass laws so that
2: so that we can do this? Well, yeah. So what you have is it's I think it's maybe it's that many. I I thought it was less than that now. But basically, yes, you're going to have to have no excuse absentee voting in this case, early voting sites wouldn't be any different than, um, you know, election day. So it's if, particularly if the virus, you know, comes back in the fall, we all hope it doesn't, but if it follows the pattern of what happened back in 1918, we might be right back where we are now, even if we have a little a break in the summer. And so you're going to have to have no excuse absentee voting, and you're going to have to have that all done by mail. Now, I think what you'd like to see states then say is we're not going to have physical election day. So we're actually going to mail ballots out to every eligible voter. So it's not something that is on the voter to execute. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of distinction around this. I think that's the ideal, which is it doesn't mean we're going to be there. Hopefully we do dig out from this and hopefully we're an all clear side and we can transact elections in the fall like we normally do. But if we can't, I think there does have to be a backup for every state that is all mail in. And that is basically the state uh, elections folks taking the responsibility of sending those mail ballots out to every registered voter. So just like the DNC is going to have to have two scenarios, normal convention in Milwaukee, virtual convention, every state's going to have to have two scenarios. David,
0: if it is all mail-in voting, who does that help? Who does that hurt? What does it do to turnout? Um, well,
2: it should it should increase turnout a little bit. I mean, obviously you do have young voters who don't, not even sure what mail is, right? So like there is, it's, it's not their standard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure we could say yet who it benefits. I mean, what it does change is the types of conversations online by phone that you're having with voters a little bit different, which is you should expect your ballot tomorrow. <laughs> Did you get your ballot? Have you turned it in? So we have some history uh, in campaigns in states that have mail-in voting. We know how to do this, but it is different. It makes it easier in a way because not everything is left up to Election Day, Right. You know someone has a ballot in their home and you know or you're, you know, almost 100 percent confident they're going to vote for your candidate if they turn it in. So you're just chasing that and tracking it. And the other nice thing about that is, you know, when that ballot's been turned in. I know that Mike Isakoff has voted. Right. I can't see Mike Isikoff's ballot, but all these campaigns have modeled how we think we're going to vote. So it, organizationally, uh, I've always liked the states with big vote by mail. A, because you can get infrequent voters in the bank early, because those are tend to be voters if something did happen on election day. They might not show up, right? They don't have that habitual history of voting, but also it's a way to track your progress. But at the end of the day, my guess is Trump's campaign's got huge organizations they are going to have all the money in the world. They're going to drive turnout as high as they can in every battleground state, which is the thing I'm most concerned about. So they all have a good operation, too. So I'm not sure you could say it benefits either campaign. It does change the type of campaign. The other thing is you're trying to get as much vote in early, right? So the rhythms of the campaign, uh, your advertising, your spending, your resources need to be tailored basically to the curve of voting, right? You don't want to basically hit your peak on Election Day. You kind of want to peak in the couple of weeks before that. Super important point. That occurred to me that, you know,
0: all the sort of last big bangs of the campaign where you unload stuff in the last week or so may be a lot less relevant in a campaign where people will be voting in the first couple of weeks uh, in October. Also, one makes me wonder about if there are debates, what the debate schedule is, they would presumably have to be moved up uh, rather than later. The last one in 16, as you
2: might recall, was 20 days before the election, which I thought was way too premature. But in a vote by mail scenario, something like that, 20, 16 days or something like that, just as people are getting ballots would probably be okay.
1: You suggested the possibility that Trump won't debate, but do you really believe that? Do you think he, would, he could resist the spotlight and the temptation to be up there on the stage?
2: No, I assume he's going to debate for that very reason. I just can't imagine him. It's why I still think Mike Pence is in some danger of not being on his ticket, right? Just because Trump loves to dominate you know, the oxygen, as we talked earlier, right? So if he were to dump Pence That gives him three or four days when that's all anyone's talking about, like him ducking the debates. I think he's probably doing this to try and up his leverage in the negotiations of who the moderators are, et cetera. But I assume he's going to debate. But if you're the Biden campaign, you can't go into this assuming that, right? So, so you have to have two plans. If Trump doesn't debate, those are big moments in the campaign. Now you've lost them. So what are you gonna to do to create some big moments of your own? And then of course if he does debate, you know, you have to be ready for those. Those are gonna be fascinating by the, they're gonna be like geriatric cape matches uh for the <laughs> history books, you know. They may end up on the floor together. <laughs> but I think that um no, but I assume Trump will debate. I mean, I just can't imagine because it's not just that his narcissism is obviously of a historic nature. And so he to not be on that stage in the spotlight I think would not be acceptable to him. But also, he'll be accused of ducking the bait and being chicken and just stuff he just doesn't roll with. So I think at the end of the day, we'll end up having the debate.
0: Well, let's examine or at least talk for a moment about sort of real wild card scenarios. As I look, the Drudge Report is linking at the top to a story that says uh, draft Cuomo movement building. Could he walk away from brokered convention with nomination? That's on one side. And on the other, you mentioned Trump could ditch Pence. Let's take it even further. If the economy is truly cratered as much as some people fear and hasn't recovered by the summer. Is Trump a sure thing? You know, at what point does Mitch McConnell and other senior Republicans saying that we're going to all go down to defeat with this guy with a cratered economy and we got to replace him with somebody else? I realize those are not very likely scenarios, but there are two scenarios people are at least talking about.
2: Yeah. And Trump, I just think he commands such loyalty from the Republican Party that if we do end up in a severe recession, which seems more likely than not at this point, you know, the duration of that, I think, is a real question. His base will say it wasn't his fault. It's the fault of the Chinese. It's the fault of blue states. Like the only way Trump would be in danger is if 50 percent of Republicans all of a sudden say, I don't think he should be our nominee. Um, And, you know, his support levels amongst Republicans are just rock solid. So I don't see that happening. The Pence thing, I think, could happen. A, he could conveniently say, I I think Pence screwed up their response here. I don't think that's likely because he ultimately bears responsibility for that. So I think it's more just like he wants the attention. So if he were to dump Pence for Nikki Haley, you know, that'll dominate all of our discussions for a few days. And that's how Trump rolls. And uh, Cuomo, address the uh, Cuomo boomlet. No, I mean, but Joe Biden's our nominee. There's not going to be a broker convention. So I think that, you know, that's, I assume, just drudge making mischief. But Joe Biden's our nominee. So everybody out there, and it's kind of the point of my book, we all have to make our plan. I wrote this not knowing who the nominee is going to be. But now that we know who the nominee is, like, what is my personal plan? And I think not spending time, well, maybe Biden should revisit his pledge to pick a woman and pick Cuomo, right? Or, you know, maybe the convention should uh, become something that's a little more interesting. Joe Biden is on a path to have the majority of pledged delegates. And that's our race. Our race is Biden-Trump. And again, I just don't see a scenario where either of those gets knocked off the trajectory.
1: Well, on the Pence thing, I will point out that uh, he appointed Pence to be the head of the Coronavirus Task Force, and then effectively has replaced him with himself. I think it's fair to speculate because (laughs) Pence was getting the spotlight and he wasn't. One last thing on your book. Actually, I wanted to give you a chance to plug the second book because you actually put two books out simultaneously. You did a a version of the book for kids called Ripples of Hope, Your Guide to Electing a New President. And since I'm cooped up here in my home with my two teenage daughters who uh, have plenty of time on their hands, they should probably get copies of your book. But tell us why you decided to do a book geared toward kids who can't vote in this election anyway.
2: Right. They don't have a vote, but they have such a powerful voice. So uh, a scenario I like to think about is a family is sitting around the table. They're all united in the fact that they don't want Trump to serve a second term, right? Uh, And maybe Trump said something today on the news or tweeted something that the mom or dad says, it's just outrageous. I can't take it anymore. And I want one of the kids at the table to say, well, what are we going to do about it? (laughs) Like, what are we going to do about it? What's our plan to get involved? Like, how are you guys using your Facebook accounts? Are we going to Arizona? Like are we writing postcards? So I think kids can be a powerful motivator of others to, to do more. I think they can say, I want to get involved. And if they get involved, I think it tends to attract others. I also think this is election is is much more about them than my generation. So for them to lift their voice, creating content, using their own social media channels, if that's appropriate, and approved by their parents, yeah. to say why this election matters to them. So the Ripples of Hope book, I appreciate asking that. Um, you do uh, quite a bit of, of educational background, like about the Electoral College. And um, so folks understand what a presidential campaign is, but some ideas in there about how they can be helpful. So to me, that's powerful, which is, I know I've got a 15 year old and 11 year old and, you know, when they get passionate about something, it really um, has an impact. And so, um, you know, we've certainly had those conversations as a family about what are we going to do in the fall?
1: Let me just say that uh, I suspect that my daughters, they're supposed to be telelearning right now. I suspect that they're both on TikTok right now. But my guess is it's not about the 2020 election. But who knows?
0: One last quick question, David. When do we hear from your former boss, Barack Obama?
2: Well, I think he has done the appropriate thing here, which is even though his former vice president was running, you know, really to let the voters decide. And so I think he and Biden and others want to give Bernie Sanders the time to really figure out what he's going to do and how. So I think when it's appropriate. You know, maybe it's after Sanders formally suspends his campaign, you know maybe uh, it's just we get deeper into the spring, and, and it's clear that we may not have primaries till June but the general election starting. So he'll do it in a thoughtful way. And you know I think he can be an important surrogate out there, both in terms of helping to unify the party and speak to some of Bernie Sanders supporters, but also just to be helpful on the trail. Now again, that may be different for him as well. So hopefully yeah, well, know, um, he's someone who's skilled at video communication. He does yeah, he doesn't have to just do rallies, but um, that's a thing. I mean if you're the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign. So yes, you have to be working right now on what if we can never do a rally again between now and November? What does yeah. our campaign look like?
0: I was just going to say, we have to change our terminology. You said out there on the trail, it's more likely to be out there on the virtual trail. But David Pluff, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. It was a great discussion. And the book, again, is A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump.
1: So thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Stay safe. Yeah, you too. Stay healthy, David. Thanks to former Barack Obama campaign manager David Plouffe, author of the new book, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.